All right, opening your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter number 2 tonight. 1 John, chapter number 2. I did some praying this week about what God would have us to preach on tonight and felt liberty from the Lord uh, to preach on this passage. 1 John, chapter number 2. And I'd like to read the first 17 verses of this chapter. And we could go on further. We're not going to do that because uh, I don't know that time would allow the preaching on it. Uh, but also you find a transition of thought along about verse number 18. But uh, read with me tonight, First John chapter number 2. Verse number 1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. He that saith, He abideth in Him, ought himself also so to walk, even as He walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him uh, that is from the beginning." I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the Word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight. I pray that you would give me the the words and the thoughts and the ideas that you'd have me to present to your people. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'd make those effectual to our hearts and lives. And God, that you would open our eyes to your word. Lord, your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And we're trusting him to make these things not only revealed, but real to us tonight. And we'll be sure to give you the glory, Lord, because it's your word, your spirit, your preaching, your people, your house. And Lord, it's your blood, it's your gospel, your grace and your salvation. Father, we just trust it all to you tonight, and we thank you for loving us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to say just a very quick word about what we preached on last week for those that weren't able to be here. 
we began looking at the book of 1 John. 1 John is a unique book in the Word of God. It is an epistle, meaning it's a letter that was written to either an individual or a group of individuals or to a church. And we know from studying this passage that this was written to a little church that was experiencing a persecution much like what the church is facing today. John does not identify himself throughout the entire book of 1 John. And that's kind of one of the unique signatures of John, is he never talked about himself. And uh, I'm not saying that it was wrong when Paul or when Peter or when James identified themselves, but let me just say it speaks a lot when we don't talk about ourselves, but we begin like John did when he said, that which was from the beginning. And he started off talking about Jesus Christ. You know, people can know us and, and, and not know much. I mean, I'm just being honest. They know me and they won't know much. But if they know my Savior, they'll know the one person that matters. They'll know the one that can make a difference in their life. And so as John writes this letter, uh, you know, the, the book of 1 John is just filled with beautiful verses. And every portion of the Word of God is wonderful and beautiful in a way. But you know what I mean. There's certain verses that you read, and just the poetry of it, and just the thought of it, uh, speaks to your heart in a particular and a tender way. And the book of 1 John is written uh, in that manner. But you'll find as you study the thoughts that God gives us in 1 John, that it's very clear that John is dealing with some sort of doctrinal problem. And could I say that in many ways, every problem that the church has today, uh, in some way, sources itself back to a doctrinal problem. Now, that's not to say that churches don't have problems that are uh, moral problems or uh, problems that are service problems. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if you trace it far enough, at some point you'll find bad doctrine as the root and basis of that problem. And in the same way, when you read through 1 John, it's evident to you that John is trying to do some straightening out of some confusion and some things that had somehow got twist-turned the wrong way. Well, as you study the history of the writing of 1 John, you'll find that there was a movement that was known as Gnosticism that existed in first century Christianity and even exists today. We have a word that we uh, hear very often today, the word agnostic. And an agnostic is someone that uh, they don't say there is no God. They say there's no way of knowing whether there's a God or not. And if there is a God, they don't care whether there's a God or not. And what they're saying is, I don't know. And that word agnostic, that's literally what it means is no knowledge. When you take that little letter A and put it at the front of any number of words, it negates the thought of it. If someone's amoral, it means they lack morals. Or if a person is an atheist, it means they're not a theist. They reject the idea of God. Well, if an agnostic is someone that claims to have no knowledge, then a Gnostic would be a person that claims to have an abundance of knowledge. And so this group of what we call Gnostics were a group of uh, infidels and heretics that they believed they had an advanced revelation from God. In other words, they believed that they knew something that no one else knew, something that they got not from the Word of God, not from the truth of God, but they had got it special, it was advanced. Uh, they were part of an elite group and they knew something that this little group of believers that John is writing to didn't know. 
And, uh, you know, th- this uh, movement of Gnosticism, just like anything, you know, I was talking last week, it's just like if, uh, if somebody would say, well, I'm a Baptist. Well, you know, that don't mean a whole lot other than that you dunk people when you baptize them. Uh, there's something like over a hundred different types of Baptists. Uh, you know, what type of Baptist are you? And, uh, you know, uh, the very same way with Gnosticism. If someone would say, I'm a Gnostic. There were hundreds of different uh, sects and factions of, of Gnosticism. And so what kind of Gnostic are you? Well, the group of uh, Gnostics that were persecuting this little church, uh, it was known as Docetism. And uh, Docetism was basically a group of people uh, that held to three major doctrines. And do you know this? That And it's the same way today. Uh, the most dangerous true, uh, lie is that that's nearest to the truth. Uh, you know, and that's how that heresy is in the church today, and false doctrine uh, in the church is today. I mean, we don't have to worry for the most part about people getting drawn away uh, in Islam or getting drawn away in Buddhism or getting drawn away in Hinduism, and we don't really even as much have to worry about people getting drawn away by the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not really the doctrine that's quite so dangerous to the average church-going, uh, somewhat educated church member. It's those uh, heresies and those false truths that are closest to the real truth that parade themselves as truth, just as Christ warned His disciples. He didn't warn them of wolves. He warned them of wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, the sheep know to stay away from the wolf. It's just the wolf that's in sheep's clothing that they don't know what to do with. And it's the very same way today. So these, uh, this movement of docetism claimed to be Bible Christianity. And there's a lot of things today that claims to be Bible Christianity, but John gives us some ways we can know what truly is and what truly isn't. And they had three basic doctrines that they believed that John deals with in the book of 1 John. One of them is that they believe that all material things are inherently wicked or evil. In other words, everything you can touch, see, feel, smell, taste, it's bad, it's wrong, it's wicked. And by the same token, they believe that everything that was spiritual or of the spiritual realm was inherently good and righteous. So, in other words, everything that you can't taste, see, smell, uh, you know, feel, and, and so on and hear, uh, those things are inherently good. Now, that sounds good, but the problem is, if you believe that, uh, then you have to reject the incarnation, because uh, the Word was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. You have to reject creation, because God created a tangible world. And you have to reject the resurrection, because uh, whenever Christ raised from the dead... Uh, He held out His hands and He said, touch them, it's me, Uh, feel them, it's me. He had a glorified body, but it was not a spiritualized body. It was a body that you could have touched uh, that was uh, in this world. And so uh, they rejected all things material as evil and all things spiritual uh, they accepted as good, which means they would have to uh, accept uh, devils and uh, Lucifer and all of these various things that are spiritual. The other thing that they believed, is they believed, based upon that, and let me give you a terminology, and I know this may seem a little highbrow tonight, but this will help you. There's a terminology that I want you to get in your mind, because it'll change the way that you think about things. Theological consequence. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher, by theological consequence? Theology is the study of God, or the study of all things that are God. And consequence, we know what consequences are. Uh, you know, uh, probably, uh, you know, the generation that's here tonight, a lot of you all were the last generation to ever be raised with a grasp of what consequences are. Uh, that there is, uh, to every action, there's an equal or positive reaction. And so a theological consequence means this. If I believe A, 
then I have to believe B. I'll give you an example. If I believe that baptism is necessary for me to be saved, if that's A, then B, I believe that what Christ did on Calvary wasn't enough for me. That's a theological consequence. If you believe one, you've got to believe the other. Well, based upon their believing that all material things were wrong and all spiritual things were righteous, if they believed that, then they had to make their mind up about Jesus Christ. How could He be in this world, physical, where He could be touched and felt and heard and seen? But how could He also be the Son of God? They remedied this by this heresy. They believed that Jesus was a human being, but that Christ was the title of the Spirit that dwelt upon Him. It descended upon Him in the likeness of a dove at His baptism, and it departed from Him before He was crucified. And this is the reason that John talks about if any man believe not or confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, he's not of God. Because he's saying, no, Jesus was not one person and Christ another person. Jesus Christ was the Son of God manifest in the flesh. Another uh, doctrinal heresy, and you're going to say, when's the preaching? Well, the preaching's coming. Hang in there and remember what I'm telling you because it'll help you. Uh, You say, what's the third one? The third one is this. They believed they had a moral superiority. It's not that they didn't believe they sinned. It's that they believed that when they sinned, to them it wasn't sin. Or we might have this idea, moral relativity. It's all relative. What's wrong for you ain't wrong for me. Don't that sound like the world we live in today? We don't really know what's right and wrong. There is no right and wrong. It's just whatever feels good and feels right. I was just reading today about a Pakistani fella in Brooklyn, New York, uh, beat his wife to death because she fixed him his uh, supper wrong. And the uh, defender, uh, the defendant, or I guess what is it, the defending attorney, I guess that's what you'd call it, uh, the defense, uh, this was their statement. They said, to him, it was culturally appropriate to beat his wife. Tell me we're not just a heartbeat away from the acceptance of Muslim Sharia law in the country that we live in. And they're trying to get this man a manslaughter plea because they claim that to him, he grew up in an environment where it was okay to beat your wife. So to him, he shouldn't be held to the same standard as you and me. I'm telling you, this idea of moral superiority is nothing new. John was battling it in his day. Why do you think he said, if we say that we have not sinned, we lie and do not the truth? Because there was a group of people saying, we've not sinned, we've not done wrong. Well, I didn't say much about this last week, but I want to say a word about it this week. What was the thing they were telling this group of believers that was troubling them? What was it? You see, these believers weren't just troubled that these people existed. But these people were uh, afflicting this little group of believers by telling them something. And this is what they were telling them. Because we know more than you do, We know the way to heaven. We know how to have eternal life. And you don't. It left this little group of believers in mass confusion. And they were essentially saying within themselves, how can we know whether we're saved or not? Now, we live in a day where most of that question is vested in our feelings and emotions. But we have 2,000 years of Christianity behind us. To this little group of believers, it wasn't a matter of I feel this way or I feel that way or I'm not sure. They literally were wondering whether this group of docetism, this group of Gnostics, knew something that they didn't know and that they were deceived and didn't have eternal life. And so where do they go for the answer? Well, they go to the last apostle that's left. Peter's dead. He's been crucified upside down. Uh, James is dead. He's been uh, beheaded. 
Paul is dead. He's been beheaded by Nero. No one's left except an old apostle by the name of John. John had been prophesied that he would live to an old age at the end of the book of John. And sure enough, he did. He was the last apostle, uh, that, uh, or what we would call the disciples, the last one that would have been through our Lord in his earthly ministry, the last one that was left alive. And so he writes this letter. And we talked last week about some of the truths that he gave them. The fact that Jesus Christ was, was uh, really the Son of God. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, uh, which our hands have handled of the Word of life. In other words, he's saying, we know he's real. And he, he knocked down their moral superiority. He said, if we say that we have not sinned, we lie and do not the truth, and uh, his Word is not in us. And he comes down to chapter number 2, and we talked about the first two verses last week of chapter number 2. He encourages this little group of believers by saying, listen, uh, Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. We don't need this group of people to be a go-between between us and God. We've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He's the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we come to the verses that I want to focus on tonight, and I just want to do what I did last week. I want to read through them and give you some thoughts. How do we know? Look at what it says in verse number 3. John says, and hereby. Well, what does that mean? He's saying this is the way. Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, I want to say very plainly tonight that what John is saying here, and what I mean to say by this, is not that if a person's saved, they're never going to sin. In fact, that would be in direct contradiction with what John had just said in chapter number 1. He said, we sin, we all sin. And he says in the very first verse of chapter number 2, he said, these things write unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin. So John's not talking about living a perfect life, but he's talking about the pattern of a man's life. I'm here to tell you right now, Christians mess up. And sometimes they mess up in big, big ways. But by the same token, I'm here to tell you that when you mess up in a big, big way, you won't stay in that messed up state for very long before you're chastised by your Heavenly Father. We can't live in sin without God letting us know about it. God will make us aware of where we've gone wrong. He promised us that He would do this. And so this little group of believers is saying, John, how do we know? How do we know who's right? How do we know who's wrong? And John gives us a few truths, but he begins by saying, the way that we know Him is there's been a change in us, and we have a desire to do the commandments of God. Listen, I I worry sometimes about Christians that, that are always complaining about the restraints God puts on their life. Can I say to you that when God saved me, I'm nowhere near perfect, and I still battle my flesh. And I still have a desire to do wrong. But with that desire to do wrong, God put a desire in me to do right as well. God put a love for Him in my heart. And I don't always love Him like I ought to. And I never love Him like He deserves to be loved. But I do have a love for Him. And everybody that is born of God, there's going to be a change that will take place in their life. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is not a matter of debate. It's not a matter of examples. It's not a matter of, well, I knew a guy or I knew a lady. Or uh, what if this happened or what if that happened? God says unequivocally, when a person gets saved, there will be a change in their life. And remember, they're asking this question. How do we know if these people are the real deal or not? John says, I'll tell you how you know whether they're the real deal or not. What does their life say about their walk with Christ? 
We live in a day of, I mean, of, what is it? Is it Baskin Robbins that has the 31 flavors? We live in a day of Baskin, Brandon knew. We live in a day of Baskin Robbins Christianity. You can have anything you want. You can have your preaching how you want it, your singing how you want it. If you don't like what this guy says, go about five miles down the road, you'll find church says it the way you like it. And here's the question we have to ask ourselves. How do we know who's the real deal or not? Now, let me make this statement. I want you to grasp this. We are not the profession police. You understand what I'm saying? It's not our job to go around to everybody that says they got saved and scrutinize and analyze everything about their life and decide whether they measure up to what we think or not. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a measure of responsibility upon us because we are choosing where we're going to go to church, where we're going to raise our families, where we're going to spend our time, what we want our name associated with. There is a measure of responsibility that we have to discern those that are around us. Now, I'm not saying we go around, we're not fruit inspectors. I'm not saying we go around and look at everyone's life all the time. But what I am saying is this, if you have a question, is this person the real deal or not? Ask yourself this, what does their life say about it? And some of you, I'm sure, are going to say, oh, but, but preacher, you don't understand. You know, I knew this preacher and, and, and he, you know, he, was, uh, he went to a fundamental church or pastored a fundamental church and, and uh, you know, it was the right kind of church and this, that and the other and, and he messed up and he got out and sinned. And guess what? I probably know more of them than you do. I'm not saying it's an indictment on that entire church, nor am I saying it's an indictment on that entire movement. But let me tell you something, when he lived that way, It told me something about him. That's not to say people can't change. It's not to say people can't live right and do right. And it's not to say people don't mess up. But I'm saying we've got to be careful about the old adage, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I wouldn't want my life judged. And listen, (laughs) I hope this doesn't seem unkind. And I don't mean it that way. I hope you understand what I'm about to say. But I don't think I'd want my life judged by every single Christian that I know. And they're the way they live. You understand what I mean? I mean, I, I wouldn't want every Christian that, that, or every person that names the name of Christ, I wouldn't want everybody to look at their life and think that's the way I live. And there's probably some Christians that would say the same thing about me and the way I live. Now, I don't mean that in an ugly way. I'm just merely saying this. Uh, you know, that's one of the wonderful things. You say, why are you an independent Baptist? I'm an independent Baptist because I know Baptists, amen. <laughs> I don't want to be yoked up with anybody but Jesus Christ. That's why. I, I'm not an independent Baptist because everybody's my enemy because they're not. I'm an independent Baptist because the Bible prescribes the autonomy of the local church that Christ is the head. But then, too, I don't want to be yoked up with anybody other than Him because I know how He's going to behave and live and act. So John is saying, how do we know? Well, we know because we keep His commandments. And remember that uh, there's a twofold application here. John is, is writing these believers because they're wondering about themselves, but also because they're wondering about this other group of people. We know because we keep His commandments. In other words, look at the way they live. You can tell by the way they live they don't know God. And look at the way you live is what John's saying. And ask yourself, do I know God? Now, again, it's not to say if you mess up that you don't know God, but it's to say this, if you uh, can sin and there's no conviction and there's no concern and it doesn't bother you and it doesn't grieve you and you can live any way that you want to live and uh, you just think God's okay with it, there's a good chance you don't know the God of the Bible because He's not that way. I heard a preacher say the other day, well, I'll tell you who it was, it was Brother Don Sable. You all remember Brother Don? And I was in a meeting the other day and he was talking about the local church. And he said, I always hear people talk about how messed up the church is. But Don said, and this stuck with me, he said, 
I don't think the church is as messed up as we think it is. He said, I just don't think the church is as big as we think it is. What he's saying is this. Just because somebody puts their name on a church roll, just because they go and attend a church or they say, that's where I go to church, that don't mean they're part of the body of Christ. And God will make a change in us when we put our faith and trust in Him. He gives the opposite end of the spectrum in verse 4. At first he says, how do we know Him if we keep His commandment? Then he says, he that saith I know Him. Boy, that's everybody today. Everybody today. I mean, even the Muslims will say I know Him. Even the Muslims say I know Him. They don't say I know Him as the Son of God or the Messiah, but they say I know Him as a prophet. Everybody says I know Him. John says, well, so what if they say, I know him? He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. It's strong language, but it's Bible language, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Not in him. Not in him. Now, we live in a day where, I mean, you'll see a bunch of preachers on the TV or on the radio or people coming through, bulletins plastered everywhere. And, and I'm not trying to vilify all those preachers, but I'm merely saying this. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know who really knows God and who doesn't? I'll tell you how you know. Those that live according to the Word of God, those are the ones that know God. We could talk about, and I'm not going to waste my time calling a bunch of names that you all know are a bunch of charlatans anyway before I name them. But we could go through the history and talk about uh, about every single TV preacher or every single local preacher or every single evangelist that's messed up. Uh, and, and they didn't just mess up once, but they messed up and got out and stayed out and have no remorse about it. And we could go through and name a bunch of names. But suffice it to say, they may have said they knew God. And you can scream it from the hilltops. But if your life doesn't say it, it doesn't mean anything to God and it ought not mean much to us either. Our life is going to reflect our relationship with God. John takes it a step further in verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. And hereby know we that we are in him. Now there's two things I want to say about that. And I'm going to begin at the end. At the end of verse 5 where it says, Hereby know we that we are in him. That is not necessarily reflecting only back to the immediate statement. But back to what he says in verse number 3. And hereby we do know that we know him. And he says in verse number 5, Hereby know we that we are in Him. So what he's doing is he's giving a summarizing statement. He began by saying, How do we know Him? This is how we know Him. And he ends by saying, How, are we, uh, how do we know if we're in Him? This is how we know that we're in Him. I believe it reflects the statement prior to it, but I don't believe it just reflects that. But he uses this terminology, Whoso keepeth His word. Now, the Bible is on purpose. None of it's on accident. And it's interesting that he begins by saying keeping his commandments, and then he ends by saying keeping his word. And there's two different things that he says. Where he says keep his commandments, he says we know him. But where he says keep his word, he says hereby is the love of God perfected. And I heard an interesting analogy that I want to share with you, and I believe that this probably reflects this truth. Now, if we were to say the commandments are the word of God, then I believe that's an accurate statement. But if we were to say the word of God are the commandments... That's not an entirely accurate statement. It's just like you've heard people say before, well, I think a preacher ought to preach, uh, just ought to stay focused and only preach the gospel. Well, I don't. I don't. Because we're commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, the gospel is the Word of God, but the Word of God is not just the gospel. 
We need to have a focus on the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. It needs to be preeminent. I'm not trying to downplay the gospel. I'm just merely saying this. The Word of God contains the gospel, but that's not the only thing that's in the Word of God. You have 66 books of the Bible, ranging from Adam all the way up until John. God dealt with a lot of things, not just the gospel. This same truth is found here. The commandments are the Word of God. They are the Word of God. They are truth. But the Word of God is not just the commandments. In other words, that's a broader spectrum the Word of God is. Now, there are commandments, but I'm thankful it's not just commandments. I I mean, listen, when the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but of everlasting life, that's not a commandment. That's a statement. And I want to say I'm thankful God made that statement. So we understand that He's talking about, uh, not necessarily talking about two entirely separate things, but he's giving two separate ideas. And I heard this analogy, and this stuck with me. Uh, A little girl one day came home from school, and she wanted to run out and play. And her mother looked at her and said, Before you run out and play, I have a list of chores for you to do. Now, that little girl could have said, Well, I, I don't care what my mother thinks. I'm not interested in her. I'm not interested in what she expects of me, and I'm just going to leave. But she didn't do that. Why? Because it was her mother. She loved her mother. She cared about her mother. Though she didn't want to do those chores because she belonged to her mother, she did them nonetheless. She kept her mother's commandments. And then the next day came, and that little girl came home from school again. And her mother had told her, said, Honey, whenever you come home, you can play all you want until I call you for dinner. But then when the little girl came in the house, she heard her mother on the telephone in the other room. And her mother was talking to a friend, and her mother said this, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got work that needs to be done. I've got things that need to be accomplished. I've got to, I've got to get the potatoes peeled, and I've got to get the vegetables ready, and I'm having people over at the house, and, and dinner's coming. I don't know how I'm going to get it all finished. And she hung up the phone and went in the other room, and her little girl looked at her and said, Mama, you just go lay down and rest. I'll take care of what needs to be done. She didn't have to do that, but she did it. Now, the difference is this. The first time she kept her commandments. The second time she kept her word. Now, some of you are asking yourself, well, but preacher... Are you saying God expects us to do things that He hasn't commanded us to do? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. Uh, The difference is those that know Him will be beckoned and constrained to obey Him. But those that love Him will do it joyfully and willfully. Hereby is the love of God perfect. That word perfected means matured. Matured. It's not saying you're going to love God perfectly or be without sin. It's saying if you really love God, He's not going to have to browbeat you and beg you and whip you and bribe you to get you to do everything for Him. So John gives us two aspects. At first he says, how do we know uh, whether they know God or not? Well, they're going to do His commandments. And then he says, well, how do we know if we love God or not? Well, we don't have to be begged to do them. Uh, And Christ said this in uh, John chapter 14. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So he goes on a little further. And we're not going to get as far as we'd like to tonight, but let's go a little further. Verse 7, he says, brethren, uh, well, let's stop and look at verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about that, but simply say this. Notice, first off, the practicality of that statement. That's practical. If you say that you trust him, if you say that you love him, if you say that he abides in you, then you ought to live and act like he does. I remember hearing one time a little girl's statement whenever she had been one to the Lord. She was at a church, maybe it was a vacation Bible school, and uh, she had heard the gospel and responded uh, affirmatively, asked Christ to come into her heart and forgive her of her sins. 
And they had took down her information and they wanted her to go and stand before the church and talk to the pastor. You know, you've seen it done. And so they brought the little girl in and the pastor looked at the little girl and said, What happened to you, honey? And she said, I got saved. He said, That's wonderful. He said, How did you do that? She said, I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me my sins and come to my heart and save me. And he said, What are you going to do now with your life? She said, I'm going to try to live to make him happy and to please him. He said, thank you, honey, and went to look at the next child that had made a profession. That little girl raised her hand and said, excuse me, preacher. And the preacher said, yes, yes, honey, do you have a question? She said, I do. She said, if God's so big, and if he's in me now, won't he stick out? (laughs) You know how kids do. But there's a truth there that we need to wrap our hands and our hearts and our minds around. And that is this, that when God comes to indwell inside of us through the, through the person of the Holy Spirit, He's going to stick out. He's going to change us. That's what John's saying. If you say He abides in you, then you ought to walk even as He walked. Well, how do we know how to walk? Look at verse number 7. Now again, remember, this, this group of docetism were saying, we know something you don't. We've got a new commandment that you don't know. Well, you need to come to us to find it out. Verse 7, John says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. Now, I, you know, I kind of imagine, and, and I mean, I, I'm a bit of, of a dramatist, not dramatic, I hope, but a dramatist when it comes to my imagination. And I can just see uh, this uh, group of uh, petty and small, uh, quote-unquote, Christians that didn't really know God trying to lord over this little group of believers. And I can see them looking at those believers and saying, well, you know, you just need to follow us. You just need to listen to us. You, you follow us, you'll be all right. Everything will be okay. And I can see one of those little humble Christians coming and saying, yeah, but we got a letter from John. <laughs> and I can kind of see that look wash over their face when they say, John? John who? John the Apostle. And you say you have a new commandment. But John said, brethren... Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. What does he say? But an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Can I say to you that the word of God has not changed? It's still true. It's still right. It's just as right today as it's ever been. It's just as culturally relevant today as it's ever been. Our culture may have become irrelevant to the Word of God, but the Word of God is still relevant to Christians, to the church, and it's still what sinners need. I know that, that we kind of have in our mind, well, the world's just bad. We've got to live a different way now. No, we don't. We don't have to live a different way now. We may stick out a little more living right now than, than the way we would have 100, 150 years ago. We don't have to live differently. The devil's not our daddy anymore. God's our daddy, and we ought to be listening to what he has to say. He's our heavenly father. John says it's nothing new. It's the word of God. When he says from the beginning, he's not saying from the beginning of time, but he's saying from the beginning of the gospel. From the beginning of the preaching of the cross of Calvary. John says, from that beginning, this word that you've had, the same truth, the same gospel, the same purity, the same holiness, the same standards. John says, that's still right in this day that we live in. Here we are 1900 years later. And can I say to you that God still says to us, it's the same gospel, it's the same cross, it's the same standards, it's the same holiness, it's the same purity, it's still the same today. It's not changed. We may have changed, but the Word of God has not changed. But then he has a confusing statement here in verse number 8 that's going to puzzle some of you. He says again, well again what? Again, I'm making a statement to you. A new commandment I write unto you. 
which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. I thought he wasn't going to give us a new commandment. No, what John is saying is this. As it relates to the Word of God and the truth of God, nothing's changed. But John says there is one big thing that's changed. He says the darkness is now past and the true light now shineth. This is a, and this is going to be a big old $10 word, so listen carefully. This is a dispensational statement that John is making. You say, what's a dispensation, preacher? Dispensations are uh, periods of time in the Bible where God dealt with men in slightly different ways. Now, it was the same God, it was the same Word, it was the same sin-fallen man, but He dealt with them in different ways. I'll give you an example. Paul talks about when the law came into the world. He says that before the law was, sin was in the world. But where the law wasn't, sin had no power. So all the way from Adam down to Moses, there were things that God had a problem with, but because He had not revealed that He had a problem with those things, He did not hold man accountable to those things. But then God revealed those things, and now there's a standard that he expected men to live by. And so we live in a dispensation that the Bible teaches is known as the dispensation of grace. The Holy Spirit of God indwells within us. The Word of God is complete and canonized and sits before us. The local church is the means, not the nation of Israel, the local church is the means through which God is dealing with this world. And we live in this dispensation of the church age or dispensation of grace. What... What John is saying here, and I'm probably going to close with this. I, oh, man, I have so much. I can just keep going and keep going and keep going. But when I say that, y'all get nervous, so I'm not going to do that. I can see, when I say I could preach all night, beads of sweat start welling up on you. So I'm not going to do that to you. But uh, what John is saying is essentially this. Throughout the entire Old Testament law, all we had were shadows of the Word and truth of God. Now, we had the Word of God through the Old Testament, but who's the Word? Christ is the Word. And throughout the entire Old Testament, all we had were types and shadows and figures. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches. They were just a glimpse, just a shadow. A shadow will give you an idea, but it won't give you the detail. But the Bible teaches in John chapter number 1 that God was manifest in the flesh and that the true light came into the world, Jesus Christ. He said in John, uh, I believe it's chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Actually, where the Bible talks about being manifest, in 1 Timothy 3.16, we preach on it Sunday morning, God was manifest in the flesh. That word manifest literally means to turn the lights on, to be brought into the light. And so all through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was looking for a Messiah, looking for God. And they saw a picture of Him in the sacrificial lamb. They saw a picture of Him in Moses. They saw a picture of Him in Aaron. They saw a picture of Him in their deliverers in the book of Judges. They saw a picture of Him in David. But now we come to Bethlehem. We don't see pictures anymore. We don't see shadows anymore. But God manifests in the flesh and dwells among us. We have the the absolute comprehensive person of God. That's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Or the book of Colossians says that. And the book of Hebrews says that He's the express image of the brightness and glory of God. When, listen, you know, what, you know what Christ said, Philip said? And I'm going to say it how I'd say it, okay? I'm not changing the Word of God, but just for time's sake. Philip said, Lord, if you chose Father, we'd finally be satisfied. And boy, you know, that's what people say today. People say, well, if I, you know, if God just hit me over the head with a ton of bricks, I'd be satisfied. You better be careful. He might do it. 
Well, if God just show me something, God just show me something. Uh, you know, it's kind of like it was when the rich man was there in hell and he told uh, Abraham, he said, if one came from them from the dead, they would believe. And he said, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear then. Uh, let me tell you something. People say, I wish God show me a sign, show me a sign. They wouldn't believe it if God showed them a sign. They'd look at it and they'd, uh, you say, how do you know that? Well, uh, let's look around at this big old wide world that we live in with the signature and handwriting of God on every plant, every tree, every rock, uh, every surface. And man looks at it and says it was the Big Bang Theory. We look at, at uh, human beings, look at mankind made in the image of God. Hey, we're triune beings. You ever look at your body? We're triune beings. Our hand is fingers and palm and thumb. Uh, our arm is uh, hand and forearm and upper arm. Our leg is foot and shin and femur. All over us we have that threefold signature of God. And uh, man looks at a God and says, we didn't come from you, we came from monkeys. God's given man signs. But when the world by wisdom knew not God, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe on Him. Man has rejected God. God has made Himself known to us. And God has revealed Himself to us. The darkness of the Old Testament law, the darkness of the antediluvian age, the darkness of the age of innocence, all of these things are past now. John says the darkness is past and now the true light shines. You say, what's that true light that's shining? You remember what Christ said? He said, henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what the master doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that the Father hath made known unto me, have I made known unto you. Through his word he has made known uh, the will and mind of God to us. And we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside us to teach and apply these truths to us. The darkness is past. And the true light now shineth. Which thing is true in Him. He's done this. He's been manifest. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's been set forth, evidently crucified amongst us. And it's true in us. Because if we believed upon Him, the veil has been lifted from our eyes. And the, the natural blindness that man is born into this world with by which he does not know God, and the, uh, the uh, willful blindness by which we choose to not know God, and the judicial blindness through which we can't know God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, has been lifted away. And it's true in us that the true light now shineth. We can know God, and we can know Him personally. What's John trying to say? That little group that thinks they know something, they don't know anything. If it didn't come from this book, they don't know anything. If it didn't come from the Word of God, they don't know anything. They may say that they do, but this book's still sufficient. It's still true. It's still right. John says, you want to know if you know God or not? Do you live like you know Him? Do you walk with Him? Do you talk with Him? John's not saying you never mess up. John's saying when you mess up, He comes alongside you and shows you you've messed up, picks you up, you can't live in it, you can't stay in it. Hereby know we that we know Him if ye keep His commandments.